What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. And these markets, they just keep rallying on stocks higher. Is it about the Fed? Is it about something else? Or is this just another short-term heartbreaker bear market rally? We'll find out. Plus, another bizarre energy turn is natural gas prices in parts of Texas went near or at zero today. And... We've got an epic traffic jam of ships off Europe. We'll explain how and why on both stories. And it's time for tech heavyweights to report their numbers. Google and Microsoft do out after the bell. What should you expect? We'll dig in. There is so much ahead, but we begin at the beginning. And that is a check on the markets. We talked about a rally, and certainly that is indeed what we have. Stocks extending not only yesterday's gains, but the last couple of weeks. The Dow, by the way, and we don't want to jinx it. But the Dow is on pace to post its largest monthly gain since November of 2020. So basically the biggest monthly gain in two years, the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ, they're on track for their first up month since July. I mean, it was a terrible July, August, September. We know that. Now, October surprise, NASDAQ's up 1.8%. Oh, look at that. I can touch it and it'll do stuff. We're going to do a little happy face here. There we go. That's a good market. All right. Yields, by the way, pulling back a bit today on the back of the soft housing data. I suppose I should get that clear. There we go. I'm no Dom Chu, but I'm trying. The 10-year yield right now, that is at 4.09%. So it's come down just a little bit. The two-year as well. By the way, $42 billion worth of two-year notes. They're being auctioned off right now. We're going to get those results for you in just a couple of minutes. Let's also check down what is moving at semiconductor stocks. The Nasdaq's up 1.8%. So as you might imagine, semiconductor stocks doing well. You got NVIDIA, Advanced Micro. They're both up more than 4% right now. Home builders are also on the move. Now, Pulte, Pulte Homes, missing on the top and bottom line. But margins, how much money they're making per home, that held up better than expected despite many of the headwinds. In fact, look at that, Pulte. Now, Havnanian, if you go back a ways in the market, and I do, when they were building homes out of sticks, Havnanian is always one of these stocks, heavily traded, can often be heavily shorted. You got to wonder, is there some short covering here in Havnanian? The stock's up 12%. We're going to find out. Either way, good day for the home builders over in the payment space. Check out PayPal. That stock finally getting a nice bump in what's been a terrible year. It follows the news that Amazon will begin offering PayPal's Venmo as a payment option for orders. That news will get you a 6% spike in PayPal, but overall, if you put up a longer-term chart of PayPal, it has been a very, very rough year. All right, so let's broaden it out a bit and talk macro markets, because there has been a nice little bout of bullishness with stocks lately. We are well up off our lows from September. The question is why? Is it earnings? Is it thinking about Fed, the Fed stopping rate hikes? Is it something else? Let us dive in with what your first guest calls the developing dovish dissenters. And bring in Barry Knapp. He is managing partner and director of research at Ironsides Macroeconomics. Barry, good to have you on. I mean, listen, we're heading for our best month in two years. 
for the Dow, I know a lot of people don't look at the Dow, but the general public does, so we'll say it. To what do you ascribe this recent run of, is it seasonal? Is it the Fed? Is it something else? It's um, <clears throat> almost exclusively a function of, of the Fed and expectations that they're going to slow the, the pace of rate hikes. For sure, I think earnings season is progressing well. And I've, I've been in the camp all along that when we have inflationary recessions where G- real GDP growth contracts, but nominal continues to expand like 1970, 73, 75, 80 or 81, 82, earnings downside is much smaller uh, than it would be in a credit type crunch like the Great Recession or even 90 when the commercial real estate mm. market collapsed. But this is really about the Fed. And it began with instability that began after the last FOMC meeting. The Bank of Japan intervened to the tune of $21 billion the subsequent morning. Um, we've seen extreme weakness in Europe. And listen, this is something I think you could appreciate in particular, Brian, with all your great work on energy. The dollar has become a petrocurrency. From for almost five decades, when energy prices were strong and there were shortages in energy prices, the dollar went down. That happened in the 70s and in the O's, whereas in the other decades when energy was more abundant, the dollar was strong. That's no longer the case. So we're actually yeah. making the situation much worse in Europe, much worse in Japan, the situation being the energy crisis by tightening as aggressively as we are. And I think Leo Brainerd was the first one to pick up on this. She's the start of the dovish, yeah. you know, developing dissenters. Well, and uh, it's now translated out to Daly and Evans, uh, George, for other reasons. Well, but there's a constituency that wants to slow the pace. Well, listen, there was a great note out by Datatrek Research. By the way, I made it my RBI on WEX tomorrow morning, which is this is one of the most volatile periods in the last 20 years for the stock market in terms of more than 1% moves over a given number of days, right? We had a great early spring rally, then summer was absolutely terrible. Now we're rallying again. It's been highly volatile. And what their point was there, Nick Colas and them doing some great work, was that that will not stop until the Fed stops. Sounds like you would agree with that, that until the, and and I'm so sick of talking about the Fed, Barry, every day, right? But we have to. Yeah, when you look at the correlation across asset classes, you know, walk in and, and every morning and, and look at what the dollar is doing. If it's up, bond, so are bond yields, stocks are down, commodities are down. It's That correlation is so intense, and it's all because of the Fed. And it's the, has how the Fed impacts monetary policy around the rest of the world. So, you know, there's been this hasn't been about inflation for a number of months. We saw inflation break-evens, expectations of inflation collapse in September. It's been about the Fed's reaction function to inflation. So the markets have been screaming, particularly the belly of Treasury curves globally, that it's time for the Fed to start taking a look around and easing, uh, slowing the process and easing back. But I just wonder how, Barry, you mentioned Europe. There's this weird narrative going around where everything's fine in Europe because the storage tanks are full and the weather's been great. I mean, no, seriously, it's like, well, you know, fear mongering and now everything's fine. No, it's not. This year, as we've said, this this year is not the problem. Next year is the problem. And I only bring this up as related to the market discussion because, you know, the G7 will get together and they'll sit and they'll have a nice photo op and drink some champagne and do whatever they do. 
and they act like they're aligned. But I just wonder, look at UK, look what just happened. Look at look at the EU. I wonder if we're going to start to see a splintering of central banks and their policy responses and how much that could throw some of the financial markets into turmoil. Yes or no? Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and listen, I think you made a great point about it being a spot market and it, you know, there's abundant storage right now. We see it in the Permian as well, but it'll tighten this winter. Uh, you, you nailed that piece of it. But furthermore, listen, I think the real fallout from the collapse of the trust government is going to be the role of the Bank of England. And we're going to have the political heat on central banks really intensify. And in this country, it's happening on November 9th, right? The day after the midterms, the pressure is going to really build on the Fed. Uh, it, it's it's going to be a wholly different environment. The first story I saw in my Bloomberg this morning was about how much money central banks are losing on their bond portfolios. Yeah, I read that too. It, it, this is going to, this whole issue is going to intensify. And the Fed's role in what they're doing to the rest of the world, just consider Japan. They've intervened to the tune of $50 billion and have nothing to show for it. Um, this is this is a growing global yeah. issue. Leo Brainerd is the person who's most focused on that. And, you know, that just comes back to my whole original point that the Fed knows and that we, they're creating global instability and, and need to slow the process. And we never even got into the idea that maybe Leo Brainerd could become the actual chairman of the Federal Reserve at some point, because me thinks this administration might need a fall person at some point in time with Powell. Barry, we got to leave it there. We'll let you get back to skiing. Strap them on. Barry Knapp. A foot of snow, a foot of snow in the last two days, Bri. Oh, I'm, I'm booking booking trips now. Barry Knapp. Thank you very much. By the way, if you don't if you're on the radio, he's got like a, a ski resort picture, one of those fake backgrounds behind him. All right, two-year notes, they're up for auction. Let's get the grade with Professor Santelli at the C M E. Well, Brian, I don't know that we, maybe we should have advertised more about the two-year auction because it didn't go very well. We had 42 million two-year notes auction. The auction process ended at straight up one Eastern. The yield, 4.46. The problem, one issued market was trading around 4.44 and a half. So it tailed. Tailed is never good. You want yields to be a, a better higher in the price. Uh, you don't want yields to be higher. You want yields to be lower because the government's selling the paper. Lower yields are better. They're selling at higher prices. So the fact that this was when issued was lower is not a good thing. And if we go through all the internals, there was only one internal that was strong. And hopefully Kelly's watching somewhere, uh, Sully, because it was one of her favorites, direct bidders. Okay, foreigners uh, are indirect bidders, and that was the weakest since November of last year. Direct bidders, like pensioners in this country, large institutions, at 25.3% was very juicy. That was basically the only good metric here. 24.2 on dealers. We've talked about this at several auctions, Sully. That was the most dealers had to take since November 2021. You want dealers to take less. So this auction was definitely a bust. I gave it a D as in dog, and I think I was being generous there. Tomorrow we'll have 43 billion fives, followed by sevens to the tune of 35 billion to complete the trifecta of issuance. And I do want to point out that even though we are in QT mode, meaning we're tightening, we're not buying back from the Fed, the Fed isn't buying anymore, but Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, just floated a news story today that she's thinking about instituting treasury buybacks 
because the long end has liquidity issues. Uh, we'll have to stay on top of that story in some weird, perverse way. It kind of reminds me about the travails of the Bank of England about a week ago. Back to you. you can't, it's just some of the stuff you, you can't make up. I mean, I, I don't know what else to say about it. It's like, do this, do that. It's bizarre. Let's hope it's not the Bank of England here. We're a lot bigger than the Bank of England. Rick Santelli, thank you very much. 24% to dealers. That is not good. All right. Meantime, consumer confidence, not great either. Taking a hit in October, inflation picking up again, particularly in food and gasoline prices. But if you're watching in California, I don't need to tell you that. The conference board's consumer confidence index fell to 102.5. That is more than expected and back to the lowest level since July. In the meantime, the expectations index slid again, suggesting that recession risks are rising. More on the data with Steve Odland. He is president and CEO of the conference board and a CNBC contributor. To what, Steve, can we read from this data? Yeah, well, Brian, as you said, there are two components to the Consumer Confidence Index. One is how consumers are feeling right now about their situation. And the other component is about how they think things will play out over the next six months. It's the present situation index component that fell. So people are feeling worse this month than they did over the past couple of months about their situation. It ties directly to how they're feeling about their job security and how they're feeling about inflation. Now, food inflation is a big piece of it, but that's been pretty constant at double digit rates. It's the gas prices that have been fluctuating over this period of time. And now consumers are starting to feel a little bit itchy about their job situation as they're predicting that we're going into a recession here. So they're feeling nervous you don't want nervous consumers to be going into the holiday season because this is the biggest component yeah. of retail sales for the year. And as we all know, this is the, you know, the, the biggest component of our GDP. So they're not feeling great. The interesting thing here, Brian, is that it's all gas prices that have created this, this bouncing of the consumer confidence. It is almost directly correlated with that. You start then correlating that component with the generic polls out there as we go into midterms here yep. and they're correlated as well so you see this this uh this correlation and how people are feeling uh and how they are expecting to uh the election to play out or how the elections may play out because of how they're feeling and maybe that's why there's been so much attention on the spr releases sort of odd timing they say that's what it's used for we can debate that all day long but here's about here's the thing i've learned about the consumer in 25 years steve probably the same as you. What they say and what they do are often different. There are still trillions in excess savings, right? Money saved during the pandemic, stimulus, PPP, wherever the money's from, people have a lot of money still saved up. And everywhere I go seems to still be incredibly crowded. Yeah. Um, and you're going to all the expensive places, Brian, and that's, <laughs> that's, that's pretty consistent. The high end, the higher earners are feeling great. Consumer confidence is strong, hasn't changed at all. It's the low end where you have a bigger component of their discretionary spending going out to food and gas and those kinds of things. So I, I think you see a direct correlation you know, based on all of that. But you're right. The question is, how are they going to act? And that isn't always the same. And it could change. You know, If gas prices are able to come down, supply increases, you know, whatever happens here, this flips on a dime. And consumers are, are very reactive to this thing. So uh, you know, it, it could it could just be fine. But, uh, you know, retailers here are stocked up and they're a little nervous, Brian, because if you're going into a season, you got all your inventory 
And you know, if it doesn't sell, you're going to have to start clearing it very early and your margins are going to get hit. Well, it's fair. Enough. By the way, you and I need to hang out. I think you might be surprised at some of the, 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 the places that I end up in, in northern Wisconsin and the upper peninsula of Michigan. But that's a whole different story, Steve. That's off the record. Um, what is the biggest risk to the consumer? Is it continued inflation or is it the job market? Because the job market's been red hot. You can name your price. That appears to be rolling over right quick. Well, you know, the interesting thing is most recessions are accompanied by huge job losses. And so there's a lot of pain. This is an interesting one because we're still sitting with 10 to 11 million open positions. Now, you know, as a CEO, what you do is you try to batten down the hatches going into a recession. You stop hiring. You at least freeze things if you don't uh, you know, actually take action. So there are a lot of job openings that can be cut before you start cutting into jobs that are occupied by people. So it's a could be the, a very odd recession where you know it's relatively shallow. You have it's Fed induced, but you have a job full recession, which means the consumer pain isn't quite as much from a job standpoint. But it, you know it then depends on what happens with the inflation component of consumer spending. Yeah, and you do wonder also about wage inflation, how sticky that is, because how much you're going to pay somebody to do something. And if you keep them on board, you're going to have to compensate for their pay with what you charge. And, you know, there's this whole camp of people out there saying, oh, you can't find people. Just pay them more. Okay, to those people, I say, you know what? Open a pizzeria, pay somebody $50 an hour. You're going to have to charge $100 for a pizza. See how well that goes. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't go well. And, you know, in our wage survey, what it's saying is that CEOs expect to you know, raise wages by about three to five percent on average, four percent. Yeah. But that happens, you know, in the you know, March kind of time period. So a lot of stuff can happen between now and then. You know, if things are dropping, if things are starting to look a little itchy, yeah. that could come way down as well. And, and that's a big component of inflation as well, as you know. All right. Good discussion. Steve Odlin, thank you very much of the conference board. Steve, appreciate it. All right, we are just getting started here on The Exchange and on deck. Are there parts of the real estate market that could actually win, ultimately, in a rising rate environment? Your guess says, yeah. We're going to find out why and who. Plus, an earnings abundanza after the bell, led by Microsoft. Will their numbers excel? This is The Exchange on CNBC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 
electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, welcome back. In a low-yield environment, real estate investment trusts typically offer attractive returns. But Treasury yields near 15-year highs, they've fallen out of favor with many investors. For example, Schwab's REIT ETF has fallen about 30% this year. But your next guest says that REITs can benefit from inflation and rising rates in certain areas and in certain ways. All that despite a tough run for some of the names since the first Fed rate hike back in March. Let's find out, though, not where things have been but where they're going and bring in Brian Jones, portfolio manager at Newberger Berman. I mean, I don't know if there's any segment, Brian, more rate sensitive in the market than yours. Do you feel like all the sort of rate pain has been done? Yes. Well, thank you for having me today. And yes, I think that a lot of the rate pain has been priced into REIT securities. Our benchmark is down about 30 percent year to date. And we see REITs as trading at about 25% below our view of net asset value, which is the intrinsic value of the real estate a REIT owns. So even if you get some further declines in commercial real estate prices, a lot of that pain is already reflected Mm. in REIT valuations. And we see a lot of attractive opportunities to add names at attractive yields, names with resilient cash flows, and names that we think will grow in the the coming years. So we're looking at it like an American tower. Now, I I don't know much about the cell phone tower business other than I don't think cell phones are going away anytime soon. If anything, we're just going to build more and more and more for 5G, 6G, 42G, whatever it turns out. So it sounds like what you're saying is, Brian, is that American tower and other names like it just got literally flushed, almost panic selling below, to your point, some intrinsic real estate value. Yes, REITs have been closely tied this year to changes in interest rates. And some of that makes sense, because if the cost to borrow has gone from 3% to 6% in the in the course of a year, that's going to have an impact on Uh, how much investors can pay for real estate assets. But what we think has been overlooked is companies with resilient cash flows, even in a slowing or negative growth economy, companies with balance sheets that are well positioned to endure a change in interest rate environment, and a company like American Tower The demand is driven by the rollout of 5G technologies, by the cellular service providers. And we don't think that those trends are going to change even if there is a recession. You know, we will continue to use our cell phones uh, even if uh, economic growth slows. And the service providers really need to uh, improve their, their services. They've bid billions of dollars for spectrum to roll out 5G, and we expect that those those CapEx dollars will really yeah. benefit American Tower and other 
uh, sell tower REITs. Yeah, I saw a survey, I think it was Bank of America, where people said they would pay their cell phone bill at the same level or maybe even more than their mortgage. Like, that was the last, they won't cut anything else. Brian Jones of Newburger Berman, appreciate you coming on. Have a great day. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. All right, coming up, another crazy energy story as natural gas prices just hit near zero in parts of Texas. Ignore the screen. We'll tell you what's happening in the Permian next. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. All right, welcome back. Despite being up a little bit today, overall natural gas has been crushed lately. It's down nearly 40% in just 90 days. And check this out. Today, some natural gas in parts of the Permian Basin of Texas traded near or even at zero. It's because a bunch of pipelines are down for maintenance, some storage tanks are full. And by the way, speaking of full tanks, we also have to talk about what's happening in Europe because there is beginning an epic traffic jam of natural gas ships sitting off the coast of Spain, France, the Netherlands, and otherwise, and it may not all be good news. CBC's Lorianne LaRocco joining us now to talk about it, and you and I are probably the only people in this company that literally email back and forth with maps of ship positions. I am. Well, 60 <laughs> LNG ships sitting off the coast of Europe. What's going on? That's right. We've got 10% of the LNG vessels that are parked out there. And the reason why is because there's not enough capacity for Europe to receive these vessels. And as a result, it's impacted the price of nat gas, which means it's going down. And then on the inverse, it's taken 10% of these vessels out of service, which is driving up the price of the tankers. It's unprecedented. Well, I know a guy. One person at this table has been in Europe a lot lately talking about this issue. People say, oh, you're fear-mongering. They're going to run out of gas. I've said many times, I don't want to be very clear, it's all about the weather. Yeah. It's all about the weather. Weather drives demand. The weather's been perfect. And, it lo- and this is good news, by the way, but it also goes to show that Europe does have an infrastructure issue. They want to get off Russian gas. They better build a lot more ports for all those ships. Oh, exactly. They need regasification equipment. I mean, they literally have all of this abundance of energy and they can't do anything with it because it's like a big spigot, right? So you've got this big volume of product coming into a teeny tiny little space yeah and that's the problem that so we've gone from not enough energy now to too much energy i can't keep i'm I'm, uh, literally it might drive somebody to drink schnapps or something like this i don't know (laughs) lorianne but this also could create a it's like an inchworm effect right all these ships kind of sitting there waiting maybe they're waiting for higher prices we'll find if they're owned by trading houses they probably are is that going to create problems with shipping costs down the road all the ships are over here and i'm chenier and I need a ship over there, what's going to happen? Well, you've got 10% literally knocked right out of there. And so it's already increased the price from $100,000 a day to now $500,000 a day to have one of these vessels. And it's just going to increase. Wait, $100,000 a day to $500,000? Yeah, it's $500,000 a day now for an LNG vessel. From $100,000? Yeah. Who's winning on this? Goldar? Yeah, exactly. Scorpio? 
Exactly. This is why I just want folks to say have Golar. To it's a great name. It is. It's a but, great name. But these are companies that would benefit from that. Most definitely. Scorpio tankers. I mean, there's a whole there's a whole ton of them out there that investors really need to kind of bone up on to see where's a trade. And the other thing is, it takes time yeah. for these vessels to get there. It takes sometimes anywhere from 17 to 40 days for these vessels to go one way. And so that adds to the further constriction in terms of the capacity. Listen, it's, it's, it's good. This is a good news story overall. Lower prices, more energy, but by no means is the story over. Lori and LaRocco, thank you. Fascinating stuff. Appreciate it. All right, now to Bertha Coombs for a CNBC news update. Hi, Brian. Here's what's happening at this hour. In the West Bank, Israeli forces say they raided a Palestinian bomb lab and exchanged fire with militants. Palestinian authorities say five people were killed and 20 were injured. Thousands of people mourned the dead in a funeral procession through the city of Nablus. Ukrainian nuclear energy officials say Russia is likely preparing a terrorist act involving spent nuclear fuel at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. This is as Russian officials continue to accuse Ukrainian forces of preparing to use a so-called dirty bomb. The Ukrainian officials say an explosion at the nuclear plant could spread radioactive contamination across hundreds of square miles. On the news. Shep this evening will unpack the competing nuclear accusations and what they mean for the war in Ukraine. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. And Serena Williams says she is not retired. The tennis legend says the chances of her returning to play are, quote, very high. Before this summer's U.S. Open, Williams said she was stepping away from tennis, but did not specifically say it would be her farewell tournament forever. We've seen this before, haven't we, Brian? People say, yep, walking away, walking away, and then. Your buddy. Back. Your buddy. Well, no, actually, Brady never said it. He never said it. It was reported, but incorrectly. Bertha, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, still ahead, three big names, three reports that could tell us a lot about the economy and the markets. Stick around. It is safe to say it's a monster week for earnings. We've got a number of tech titans reporting. Let's get the action, the story, and the trade. Three names reporting after the bell. Here we go. Stock number one, Alphabet, a.k.a. Google, a company looking to prove it can withstand a slowdown in ad spending. And Sundar Pichai's push to, quote, increase efficiency by 20%. Deirdre Bosa with the story in Alphabet. And Tim Seymour has the trade. CEO of Seymour Asset Management, CNBC contributor. Deirdre, what are we looking for tonight? <laughs> Well, Alphabet is seen as a lot more resilient than its social media peers like Meta and Snap because it derives most of its digital advertising revenue from search ads, which typically hold up better in an ad spending slowdown. It's also a lot more diversified. I mean, it's got a cloud business, which is still unprofitable. Um, it's also got its other bets, which is actually investors should look closely at this because these are also money losing operations that potentially could be scaled back in a softening economic environment. That said, though, Brian, YouTube, that's sort of the big one to watch because it is more vulnerable to those slowdown pressures, the way that those ads work. Uh, so that could be one to watch, certainly, for this company. Everybody's just watching Mr. Beast and nine-year-olds unwrapped toys. Tim Seymour, <laughs> Google, it's been trading more like Yahoo lately. Yeah. Do you see a turn? 
Well, it's, it's, it's not been trading like Snap, fortunately. And I'd say it's been more defensive than other players in their space, certainly relative to Meta. And, and a lot of this is, is a combination of it's the highest quality platform there, in my view. And even during a recession, advertisers have to spend. I think the ad trends, I think they stay, I think they stay solid. I, I think we've priced in also a lot of macro in Google. And I think the comps get a lot easier for them into this quarter. Yeah. Remember, they were you know, over 60% comps last quarter. They're probably in the low 40s here. I think they get into the low 30s next quarter. So, um, I, I, you know, again, Snap's problems are not Google's. Uh, I, I look at the valuation and I look at a company that uh, certainly has a more defensive posture in this environment than some other folks that are as and as Debo pointed out, the, the YouTube volume, very critical. Anything north of 5% on revenue, and I think it's, it's actually a win. You said Debo. I'm thinking Debo Samuel. It's the 49ers. I mean, she's close. <laughs> Debo. All right, stock yeah, number everybody knows she's Debo. Devo, that's a band. I think they're from Akron. Stock number two, yes. Microsoft, yes. <laughs> hoping to offset a slowing PC market with double-digit growth in its cloud group. Deirdre, Microsoft. What do we expect? It's Debo. Remember, Brian? Tim's got it right. He's got it right. <laughs> so, I, I don't know. That's right. I said Alphabet was diversified. Well, Microsoft is even more diversified. It's got enterprise. It's got PCs. It's got gaming. It's got even advertising with LinkedIn and Netflix. And this has really been solid all year. The market has sort of hit out names like Microsoft and Apple. So expectations are fairly high. I'm going to be looking really closely at its cloud business. We talked a little bit about this with Alphabet. But remember that Azure, that's Microsoft's cloud business, is the number two player in this space. It is thought to be more resilient than perhaps the others from Amazon and Google because it has more customers, large customers in the enterprise space. So the street is expecting growth of more than 40% this quarter. If that comes in short, uh, that could spell bad news for the stock. Tim, your take on Microsoft? Well, I, I think if you look at, first of all, the stock relative to itself and relative to the market at, at 23 or 24 times EV to cash flow uh, next year, it, it's, it's, it's attractive here. I think the, the Azure revenue numbers are what we're all looking at. I think 43% down about three percentage points over last quarter is where uh, the street has been guided. And I think the, the, the guide for next quarter is somewhere around 40. I think the expectation is they come in line. The, the enterprise trends uh, haven't really changed. And I think migration to uh, commercial commercial cloud and, and, and what we've been seeing with Microsoft's business in cloud doesn't change this quarter. And I think actually the, the, the secular trends there stay very much intact. We priced in a lot of PC weakness, mm -hmm. and I don't think that drives. The FX weakness here also has been well flagged. Mm -hmm. So FX neutral, uh, I think, will be where people focus. And I think it's where they should. All right, Tim, you're sticking around. D I guess I'll call you D-Boss. How about that? Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll just <laughs> I'll do take it. it. Dear sure. Jobosa, thank you. All right, finally, Visa exposed to the consumer like almost no other, here now with what we can expect on Visa is Cairo, not just a city <laughs> in Illinois. Kroon, I've got Debo to my right here. So I also, there's a Nick Bosa on the 49ers. You also got Debo Samuel. So I had always, so many nicknames. Anyway, back to Visa, Ryan. You mentioned it. They're exposed to the consumer. We had Amex, which was a bit of a signal of what we'll get from Visa. The expectations are pretty strong for the prior quarter based on what we saw with Amex and some of the banks. So there are thoughts of like, yes, obviously, watch what happened in the third quarter. The big thing analysts are watching is fiscal 2023. So Visa is on a bit of a different fiscal calendar year than the rest of the payments companies. They are going to give guidance today, likely, for next year. So we'll get full year guidance. That is really what the payment analysts are looking for. Visa will be a bellwether in terms of what they guide, how cautious they're going to be in terms of the macro outlook and the health of the consumer, 
The expectation is because of the strong dollar and some of the FX headwinds, they may have to lower guidance and uh, change kind of how they're looking at next year. But based on Amex, you know, it's the same things, spending volume, health of the consumer, and cross-border, but we will likely see a dollar impact yeah, as we saw with Amex. Tim, if the dollar matters to Microsoft, it matters a lot more to Visa. It does, and, and I, I, I guess uh, these are trends that we've seen front and center for the last three, six months. I, I think, if anything, uh, dollar could be a tailwind for some of these multinationals in the next nine months, and I, I care a lot more about that. I, I think Visa relative to MasterCard is defensive, again, on valuation, uh, at least relative to the market. Everything's pulled in, so relative to itself maybe is not as important, but relative to the market, uh, I think they're going to be conservative. We heard from banks uh, consumer spending is 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 moving along. It, it hasn't been an issue. The guide for next year is is critical. But uh, the question is, are they going to guide of a weaker consumer that they don't see right now? And, and if you're an investor in this stock, um, while it's defensive, I do think that's coming. Uh, but I like where the stock's priced. and I like it relative to, uh, to uh, excuse me, MasterCard. Easy for you to say. Tim Seymour, appreciate it, my friend. Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> Cairo. But again, it's not j- just like the city of Illinois. It's not Cairo. It's Cairo. It's not Kate Cairo. Rooney. It's Rooney. That's- <laughs> Boston College's own Kate Rooney. Thank you very much. All right. Up next, this Staples name down nearly, what, 11% over the past month. But its CEO says the growth is still there. The steps he plans to try to battle inflation. Who is the mystery chart? We'll reveal it coming up. All right, news alert for you on Twitter. Twitter shares up nearly 3%. David Faber reporting that equity investors in Elon Musk take private of Twitter have received paperwork from his lawyers at Skadden Arps in order to prepare for closing the deal. It is another sign that the deal for Twitter is on track for a Friday close. Wow, Twitter going to be in the hands of Elon Musk coming up as of Friday. All right, coming up here on The Exchange, we're approaching the ninth month of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And some Democrats in Congress just flipped on their call yesterday to call for direct negotiations with Putin. What in the world is going on? We'll talk about it next. Welcome back. No surprise, defense stocks have had a strong year as the Ukraine war enters its ninth month with no sign of ending. The U.S. has sent $17.6 billion in aid directly to Ukraine since the beginning of the war. And some in Congress, at least as of yesterday, were speaking up. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is ready to end what he calls the blank checks to Kiev. And yesterday, a group of 30 progressive Democrats sent a letter to President Biden urging him to negotiate directly with Putin. That was yesterday. It was a big story about it in the Washington Post. I tweeted it out. But just in the last hour, those lawmakers said they withdrew the letter. Joining us now to make sense of Saul is Admiral James Stavridis. He is former NATO Supreme Allied Commander. Um, Trying to understand what happened here. 30 members of Congress sent a letter to the president saying we support Ukraine, but we need to be we need to find a way out of this. Wow, that that went away quick. Uh, Well, it just wasn't a helpful idea to negotiate directly with Vladimir Putin. Um, Putin is not sufficiently weakened, at least as yet, 
to be motivated to come to a rational settlement. So I think the lawmakers took the high road here, recognized that they had brooded an idea that was not going to fly and withdrew it. And by the way, let's keep it in perspective here. If you really look at the votes across the political spectrum, um, Ukraine still enjoys strong support from Mitch McConnell on the right to Nancy Pelosi on the left. Will the taps be shut off? No. Will they be dialed back a little bit with pressure from both, both sides? Perhaps a bit. Yeah, and I, I don't think that the, the 30 out of, out of, you know, 435 was a great percentage. But I think the reason the Washington Post did the story on it and people like me retweeted it out was that it was kind of the first breach, at least on that side of the aisle, of people saying we need to start looking for a way out. We can agree or disagree on that, but it appears there is some movement because Admiral Stravides answer us this. Absent some sort of negotiation, how does this ultimately end? Does this go on for years? I would say not for years. I think it'll go on for months to come. And we'll learn more. We'll turn over a big card in the course of the winter. We're going to see how much the European will is reduced by a cold winter, high energy prices. We'll see your point, how that left and right spectrum looks in the United States, the principal backer along with the Europeans. And on the Russian side of the coin, We'll see how much longer Putin can continue to just throw cannon fodder. He's pulling yeah. troops. It's, 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 so it's, let's call out. it for what it is. I mean, Ad, we talked about this before. In some ways, when I look at pictures of the Russian soldiers, this is this is genocide by Putin. <laughs> correct? He is sending and, members of the far eastern parts of Russia, these untrained children in many cases, who don't want to be there, don't even know what they're doing there. Ukrainians are fighting for their homeland. They're winning the war, by the way. Let's say Ukraine forces the troops out. They get all the Russian troops in retreat out of the nation. Let's hope for that and pray for that sooner than later. But then what does Putin do? Does he just go back to his dasha and, and, and stew on it? I think that's the risk. How does he get an out? Yeah, the risk is painting Putin into too tight a corner here. Because he's got 6,000 nuclear weapons, he's got what appears to be very strong control over all the organs of government. So what we ought to be doing is giving the Ukrainians all the tools to continue to weaken Putin militarily, maintain a steady flow to the Ukrainians. But over time, we need to encourage the two sides to come to some kind of negotiation. And how does it end? I think it'll look in the end, a bit like the Korean War, uh, with a highly militarized strip between these two nations, security guarantees to Ukraine from the West, a very uh, diminished Vladimir Putin, but he may still be in control of some portion of Ukraine. That's up to the Ukrainians. Well, if the, if the House and or the Senate flips on, on that first Tuesday in November, does this change the game about our funding for Ukraine? Congressman McCarthy it, seemed to indicate that it would. What he said, if you read his words carefully, was the days of the blank checks are over. The way I read that is that we're not going to simply receive a shopping list from the Ukrainians, uh, a, a certain level of funds that they feel they need immediately. 
there's going to be more of a measured approach. I think rather than an on and off switch here, we're dealing with a rheostat. We're going to kind of dial it back a bit. And that will be the subject of very significant conversations between Ukraine and the West. All of this has to be done in a way that that balances the war criminal behavior on the part of the Russians that you alluded to correctly a moment ago. Well, it is uh, it's a terrible situation for Ukraine. And we'll see what Europe's resolve is. By the way, the, the group that released the letter said that it was an accident that the letter was drafted months ago and was sent out accidentally by one of their staff members without vetting, which is interesting because it mentions some of the Russian annexations of Ukraine. Admiral James Tavridis, good conversation. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. The world hoping for some kind of quick into that, certainly for Ukraine. All right. Still ahead. Boeing seeing a boost over the past month, about 20 percent. Plane orders reportedly ramping up. So what can we expect with their earnings before the bell tomorrow? The key factors to watch coming up. All right, welcome back. We want to get one more thing before we go, and that is Boeing earnings. The Dow component down more than 28% this year, all ahead of their report, which is going to be in the morning. A lot of questions about the future of the company and its ability to get through supply issues. Phil Abo joining us now with some of the key numbers to watch on Boeing. Phil. Brian, they're expected to post a profit when they report their Q3 numbers tomorrow morning. Not a big profit, seven cents a share with revenue just under $18 billion. But the key thing that people are going to be focused on is the optimism within the commercial plane unit. It's not the entire story at Boeing, but these three things have people believing that they might be turning the corner in terms of the commercial airplane business. First of all, you've got increased commercial orders. We saw that at the uh, Farnborough Air Show in the third quarter. You've got Dreamliner deliveries resuming last quarter, and you've got higher seven three seven production rate up to 31 per month. Lots to discuss with Dave Calhoun in a CNBC exclusive. You don't want to miss when we talk with him tomorrow morning on Squawk on the Street. We'll not only go over the Q3 results, but we'll talk about where he sees the commercial plane market and especially what he thinks about what might happen over the next couple of months with the certification, not certification of the 737 MAX-10. That is the stretch version. A lot of eyes are focused on what happens over the next couple of months with that aircraft. Ryan, they're stretching out the 737 even more. Yes. It's going to turn into, surprise you to turn into a 747. It's if they keep stretching it, Phil. No, it's not. No, it's not a wide body. No, 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 no. It's just a max stretch version of it. OK, so those are the key numbers tomorrow morning. The outlook is Airbus. How are they doing? Are they winning a lot of orders? It seems like I see a lot of headlines, but I can't I can't put it together. Airbus is winning. You know, look, generally speaking, these guys, as a duopoly, um, have split 50-50, though Airbus has made some real inroads when it comes to the wide body market in terms of nailing down some big orders within the last several months. Um, But Boeing, you know, there was a time, Brian, when they were not doing well in terms of landing future orders. What they did at Farnborough might be an indication that they have some momentum uh, building in terms of customers. Yeah, very good. And by the way, I would challenge the duopoly because I've been going to Wisconsin a lot, Phil, and I've been on these Embraers, you know, as, as you're ducking to get on the plane. So I, I don't <laughs> Phil Abode tomorrow morning. David Calhoun, Virginia Tech Hokie. Say go Hokies for me. Phil, thank you very much. All right. That does it for us here on The Exchange. I'm going to be joining Contessa Brewer 
on Power Lunch, which not coincidentally starts right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 